Welcome, everybody. I'm Trey Dobson. Uh, today is July 14th, 2021. I'm the Chief Medical Officer at Southwestern Vermont Medical Center and an emergency medicine physician with Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. And this is Medical Matters Weekly, a show about the aspects of healthcare that matter to you most. You can submit your questions on Facebook Live. And as always, we have received some questions ahead of time at wellness at svhealthcare.org. And my guests today that I'm incredibly excited to have on the show are Dr. Lisa downing Forget of SBMC Internal Medicine and Becca Filson, a nurse practitioner with the SBMC Hospitalist Service. And so welcome, you guys. We're so excited to have you. Thank you. Uh, just a little bit about their background. Uh, Dr. downing Forget specializes in geriatrics. And how long have you been here, Lisa? About a year and a half now. About a year and a half. Joined us when the pandemic was starting. Um, she earned a bachelor's in human development and family studies from Cornell. She holds a master's in public health from the University of California at Los Angeles, but she wasn't done there. She went ahead and got her medical degree from Charles Drew University of the University of California, and then completed a family medicine residency at the University of Rochester. And she holds a certificate in medical direction and a fellowship in geriatric medicine. And Becca uh, is a post-master's family medicine nurse practitioner, a certificate from the University of Massachusetts. She has a master's degree in nursing from the University of San Diego in California. So we have that California connection between the two of them. A bachelor's in sociology from Wesleyan University. And the list goes on and on. She's a critical care consortium liaison and a member of the Nursing Strategic Planning Committee and Hospital Ethics Committee. And they both belong to multiple committees, which maybe we can get into in a little bit. Uh, they are active members of SVMC's Diversity and Inclusion Committee, which is why I asked them to be on the show today. So I'm just going to ask a little bit about your background. I just gave a lot, but Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about how you went into medicine in the first place? Well, I apparently wanted to be a doctor since I was four years old. Ah. That is documented in my parents' uh, books. And I eventually became a doctor and I love my job. I love what I do. I grew up in Canada and I have lived in a lot of different places in the United States, but my favorite place is right here in southwestern Vermont. <laughs> As you said, I've been here about a year and a half, and I love it here. I love the patients. I love the staff, and I'm happy that I'm able to do what I do. Uh, we were so excited uh, when you when you decided to join us, and we are so excited to have you here. Again, kind of interesting you joined and right away, uh, right into a pandemic, which we will actually talk a little bit about how that, uh, um, you know, has affected your, your work with diversity and inclusion. And Becca, tell us a little bit how you went into medicine. Of course, you and I have talked about this before. You had a, a background in climbing and then eventually went into uh, healthcare. That is true. Um, I think that medicine and nursing is really a natural fit for me. It's sort of in the center of the Venn diagram of social justice, being service-oriented, science, education, advocacy, innovation, and to speak to the rock climbing bit. Yes, anyone who knows me knows that I'm always up for a good adventure and hospitalist medicine, if it's anything, it's an adventure. And I love that about it. 
that's a great description and it shows both of you uh, why you stick with the field and why we went into it in the first place. And that's to the energy and excitement, but also to limit suffering in individuals. So let's, um, let's start right into the topic here. I'll just start with uh, Dr. Downing Forget. When did you realize that healthcare wasn't as inclusive as it should be? I think the first time I realized it is when I moved to the United States. So I grew up in a country that had socialized medicine and came to the United States and my family had no health insurance and we had difficulty accessing health care. So I am an immigrant. I am a woman of color. I grew up in a blue collar working class family and uh, later self-identified as a lesbian. So I've experienced discrimination and bias in many aspects of my life. And because, of course, I wanted to be a doctor, I paid a lot of attention to it in the healthcare field. And so it's really been a priority for me since I was small. And it's something that I've noticed that I've talked about with my friends, with my family, with my patients later on and read a lot about, studied a lot about, and realized that it's an important topic that needs to be brought forward on a regular basis. Absolutely. And are you, do you feel um, that that is occurring these days, that the topic is being brought to the forefront? I know there's a lot more to do, but uh, can you just comment on what you've seen over the past couple of years? Yes, I think that um, for people who've been interested, it's been an important topic for a long time. But I think that a lot of the social unrest that we've seen in the rest of the country over the past couple of years, there have been a lot of um, civil and social justice issues that have come to the forefront in a lot of different areas and has made us as healthcare providers pay more attention to how it affects our patients and our staff in the healthcare community. What about you, Becca? Um, what, you know, what, when did you realize that healthcare wasn't as inclusive as it should be? Sure. So prior to becoming a nurse, I worked actually in community health, working with uninsured populations in reproductive health and in HIV and AIDS clinics. So sort of my initial introduction into healthcare um, was really working with folks who had experienced marginalization for most of, if not all of their lives. So for me, starting out, exclusion from the dominant culture was the norm. And to sort of echo what, um, what Lisa said is, it's also born from my own experience living in the identities that I live in. Um, I knew, I learned it at a very young age growing up. My grandparents were Russian Jewish immigrants um, who, who fled, you know, Europe in the 1930s, 1940s. And my grandfather was a cardiologist. And I remember him treating members of our community, of his community in his home, because this was a traumatized immigrant population who often had mistrust of the medical community or fear of the medical community and really wanted to be cared for by someone with a similar lived experience. So it was really part of the fabric of, um, of my growing up. So you, you, um, you talked about marginalization and marginalized groups. How, how do you define a marginalized group? Sure. So we can start by talking about the definition of marginalization versus what is a minority population. Um, Minority is, you know, fairly simple. It is a group that is smaller than a larger group, but marginalization is a little bit more nuanced. 
Um, I've also heard it referred to as minoritization. So making that minority noun into a verb or an adjective. And, and this is a group or community that experiences unequal treatment, discrimination, or exclusion from the dominant culture. And it also tends to um, insinuate unequal power relationships, whether that's across economic, social, political, or cultural dimensions. Yeah, so that's actually such a, it's a nice way. It's a nice definition. And, and just real quick, what resources out there? We're going to go into some other questions. But for, for people that want to know more specifically on that, what resources would you refer them to? Oh, that's a good question. I would say um, for those of us in the medical community there, just go to your, your professional society. A lot of prof medical professional societies have tapped into this concept and this idea, and there are literally thousands of peer-reviewed published articles about this concept. Um, there are a lot of really great local groups who deal with uh, local marginalized populations. We have the NAACP of Rutland, which is a very active, really incredible group. There's Queer Connect here in Bennington, um, which is an advocacy group for the LGBTQ+, that's lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, queer, and questioning community. There are several local resources as well. That's great. And I actually asked that question personally because many, many years ago, I found myself um, intimidated is not the right word, but concerned that I that I wanted to ask questions but didn't know who to ask. And, you know, fortunately, I got um, moved in the right direction. This was years before coming to Bennington, and it helped me uh, relax and understand it's okay to ask questions and, and to go seek those out. Awareness is is what's important. So Dr. Downing, forget it. Why don't you explain a little bit about, and I'm moving fast here and I apologize for the audience, but we have so many good things to get through. Explain a little bit about implicit bias or, or what's known as unconscious bias in healthcare, because I, you alluded uh, earlier on that you saw that was happening and how that affects uh, patients that you've come across. Sure, well, I think most of us are aware of what we call conscious bias, treating someone differently because you're aware that you don't like them for whatever reason. But I think the, the more interesting concept is unconscious bias or implicit bias, which is when we make decisions or feel a certain way or act a certain way based on our interactions with someone and we're not really aware or conscious of it, it's usually something that's been entrenched in us since we were children, or we had a bad experience. Maybe we don't even remember that bad experience, but it's created some kind of trauma or reaction in us. And we may not even realize that we're treating someone differently based on how they look or, or how they approach us. And <clears throat> that's really important to understand I think all of us have some kind of implicit biases. Sometimes those biases can be positive and sometimes those biases can be negative. And the first place that I learned about this is actually at Project Implicit, which is through Harvard University. I would encourage anybody out there who hasn't done it already to go and take an implicit bias test. You can do it online. I believe it is 
harvard.implicit.edu or maybe implicit.harvard.edu. <laughs> yeah, several years ago when it was told to me, I just Googled it and it was the first thing that came up. So they should. Right. If you put Harvard and implicit in, it'll come in, it'll come up. You can take an implicit bias test that will ask you questions about race, about age, gender, size, all kinds of things and learn what kinds of implicit biases you might have. And for me, for example, that test was very interesting because I learned that I am in the less than 1% of the United States who is implicitly biased towards elderly individuals. And that makes sense because I'm a geriatrician. So I think I chose the right field. (laughs) But it's interesting to know that you may not know that you are implicitly biased against individuals. So I always thought, well, if I'm implicitly biased towards older adults, does that mean I'm implicitly biased against children? Well, actually, I found out that I'm not, but um, it's interesting because I think most people in the community at large and most healthcare providers assume that for some reason through our training or just because of our goals, we are less implicitly biased than the rest of the country. And that's just not true. As healthcare providers, as doctors, nurses, other individuals, we have the same levels of implicit bias that everyone else does. And so if we don't make ourselves realize that we have this bias, it may affect our care and our services towards individuals. Absolutely. And, And, you know, I, I thank you so much for bringing that up and the awareness. Um, I will tell you, I sort of struggled with this years ago. And one of the things that helped me was to understand that, um, that no one is, or, or hardly anyone is completely free of implicit bias and that that is okay. It's the awareness, understanding, and the constant correction uh, that, that can come about. You know, you talked about training and what we're trained to do uh, in medicine um, is to uh, limit suffering, right? That's one thing. And then also have and demonstrate compassion. But both of those things don't mean that you, you um, are um, oblivious to an implicit bias. In fact, it can creep right into that compassion component. And so awareness is so important. We were just talking about the scope, actually. So can each of you comment, because you have a little bit of different perspective. One is the outpatient setting and one is the inpatient setting, uh, what the scope of the problem is in in healthcare. You want to start, Becca, with inpatient? Sure. Um, I would say that the scope is incredibly far-reaching. I think one, if I'm going to speak specifically to my own experience as an inpatient provider is what I see is those who have been either traumatized or marginalized from healthcare, particularly from routine healthcare, tend to live sicker and die younger, if I'm being perfectly blunt and candid. You know, if you think about a patient who may have had a bad experience in healthcare or is fearful or doesn't have access to healthcare, they're less likely to get the routine care that they need, the routine screening. So frequently when I see them in the hospital, these these illnesses or barriers to health that may have been prevented were not because they didn't receive the access to care that they needed. 
Um, so that is one way in which I see it. I've also seen patients who are nervous about being forthcoming with their identities because they fear retribution, marginalization, or discrimination. And I, it's incredibly challenging and it's to care for the whole person when you don't really know the whole person or understand their lived experience and their identity. And what about you, Dr. Downing? Forget, what have you seen? Well, I think this, this scope is really immense. And when we look <clears throat> historically in the United States, there have been many marginalized groups that have been subject to inhumane and injustice, um, inhumane experiments and injustice in, in healthcare and access. And so among many marginalized communities, there is a reason for people to have a distrust of the medical community and that will impact their ability to seek out care, their desire to seek out care or follow through with instructions or recommendations. And it's unfortunate that that's happened, but we also know that as we progress in our society, we still have groups of individuals who have poor health outcomes than other individuals. We know that Marginalized groups have a shorter life expectancy, higher maternal and fetal death rates. They have um, inaccurate diagnoses, poorer treatment options, um, less success in treatment options. And in particular, one example that I learned of that made me stop and think was that African-American women, for example, in the highest educational levels and socioeconomic or income levels in the United States have poorer outcomes than Caucasian women in the lowest socioeconomic status groups. So there, there is a difference that we, we can see, that we can measure, and that research has shown that things like implicit bias, things like uh, structural discrimination and processes actually impact people's health. And some of that is conscious, but some of that is unconscious. And I think the other thing we have to consider is that as individuals, you or Becca or myself may be very aware and enlightened and try to work on this in our own personal lives, but we still work in a community. Mm -hmm. And when you are in a hospital or when you're in an office, there are many people that you interact with. And so our goal at SVMC with our diversity and inclusion committee is to try to provide education, training, resources to everyone in our community so that we can make a better experience for all individuals who need our help. And that's incredibly important. It goes back again to that awareness aspect, um, even while we're doing this show today, right, is to get that out there. And there are healthcare workers listening um, that actually aren't, aren't a part of, of SVMC, but I imagine um, many, and, uh, many organizations today are developing diversity and inclusion or similar type uh, committees, activities that they could be involved with. And then Becca mentioned earlier, um, specialty societies are good places. Um, for those in the community that are uh, in healthcare or actually not necessarily in healthcare, um, what in you, you mentioned some earlier, but Becca, what would you suggest or Dr. Downing forget for them to do to learn more? Would you suggest they, they research this themselves or do you have a particular place that you would point them to? 
I, I think there are so many places. Mm -hmm. If you want more information, if you want to connect with other like-minded people, you can find that pretty easily, whether you're using the internet or your local phone book. You know, if you're a part of our community here at SVMC, I would certainly encourage you to reach out to Becca or myself and ask how you can be involved. But I think that there are huge organizations and there are tiny organizations. So wherever you feel like you will fit in better, that's where you should start. Well, that's great. I asked that question because some people actually sometimes they really need that starting point. And what you're saying is uh, you can find that pretty, pretty quickly on Google and you can actually, uh, with the search engine, you can actually tailor that to whatever your profession is or whatever your question or, or desire is. So, so thank you for uh, providing that. Let's talk can about, we, yes, please do. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I think that this is a really important part of it. Sometimes the first step is really taking a deep exploration of our own identities, taking that individual journey and taking that dive into what biases have you maybe experienced as an individual? What are your overlapping or intersecting identities and how do you relate to that in your own person? Because it's very difficult to attempt to understand others and their experiences without really understanding yourself and then thereby being able to recognize where that difference might be. And really just using that as a jumping off point, you know, are there any oppression that you may have experienced in your life that you internalized? Is there anything you need to explore in yourself? So I think that's a really great jumping off point as well. Thank you for that. And then, as you said earlier, and, and Dr. Downing forgets said, uh, said earlier, using that Harvard implicit as another way to try to uncover some of those. That's great. We've been talking about patients. Uh, let's turn it a little bit to the workforce itself um, and maybe just comment a little bit. Uh, I'll ask Dr. Downing forget to start on diversity in the healthcare workforce. So one of the things that Becca and I talk about often is um, diversity for, for diversity's sake. And for me personally, in my life, I've come to the conclusion that diversity and inclusion is better in almost every setting. It is certainly not easier, but it is better. It brings more ideas to the table. It helps people understand each other better. It helps people who have no experience with other groups have some positive experience with each other, which helps them to understand each other better. I had mentioned to Becca earlier that the first time I ever had a female physician, I was in my 20s. The first time I ever had a physician of color, I was in my 30s. And I was even older than that the first time I met another provider who identified as LGBTQ. And so for me, I feel like there's an understanding um, among a provider and a patient when they look the same or talk the same or come from the same background. So that's always nice for patients. But I think it's more important on a professional level to understand that there are other people with different backgrounds and different ideas who think differently than you. Those ideas are important. They should be embraced. And through change is how we grow. So as we move towards more positive change, including more people in that conversation is always going to be beneficial. 
That's great. Um, I think that's true in healthcare. I think it's true in almost any aspect of business or society. We look at diversity is what leads to innovation. And innovation is what improves outcomes, whether you're selling widgets, whether you're mission-driven or doing a service. And um, I think that it takes a while for uh, people to understand that, but once they see those improved outcomes, uh, you don't go back because it's so clear. So as we sort of wrap up here, just a few things, um, what do you see as major shifts uh, either locally or even at the state or federal level that need to occur in healthcare uh, to improve diversity and inclusion? And I'll, I'll start with Becca. Sure, I think that bias training and I think, uh, I think bias training is very important, but I think that training also needs to be ongoing. You know, you can think of change as transactional, meaning, okay, we did a bias training, let's check the box and move on. We did it. We don't need to do it again. Or you can think of change as transformational, really transforming the lens with which we view healthcare, our organization, our nation, and and making sure that we continue to grow, evolve, question, and, and strengthen our institutions, whether locally, nationally, or even personally. Um, a lot of that really comes down to prioritizing this work. That means ensuring we have a diverse workforce that includes having um, diverse identities and leadership roles making sure that our mentorship pipelines are diverse, looking at who are we training, who are we mentoring, who are we lifting up and centering within our organization and in our country. Well, it was well said. Do you have anything to add to that, Lisa? Well, I, I think that's true. I think that many places are um, opening up committees, um, establishing new positions for chief equity officers, um, starting pipelines. And I think those are all important. I think ongoing training is important, but I think that all of that needs to continue. We do have a lot of work to do and we will know when we get to the point where we have reached equality, when the research shows that everyone gets the same treatment, everyone has the best possible outcomes. And that's what we are striving for. Absolutely. And gosh, I hope we see that within our lifetime, but certainly we'll make those gains. How has the COVID pandemic, real quick, I just ask you this, how has that changed the way you see the problem of inequity in healthcare in this country? I'll start again with Dr. Downing Forget. Um, I don't know that it's really changed for me that much, mm -hmm. but it has highlighted some of the issues that we knew were there to begin with. So issues of access, issues of equity. Um, clearly, we know that African-American, Latino, and uh, American Indian populations, for example, with COVID, became sicker and were more likely to die from this disease. So it, again, it just highlights the things that we already knew were present, but hopefully because this was such an urgent and emergent process in the United States, it highlighted this for more people. And that's what I'm hoping is that people can see that this now is an issue that's kind of all over the news and that it's something that we need to work on. I think it also helps people from marginalized communities come forward and speak out about their experiences and should help us as healthcare professionals if we listen to hear what needs to be done to make an improvement in the future. So Becca, if 
uh, how should a patient who who experiences inequality handle it? I was nervous you were going to ask that question because that's a really hard question. And when I first read that on the list of possible questions, if I'm being honest, my knee-jerk reaction was, I don't think that's the right question to ask. I think the right question is, how do we as a health system not treat patients inequitably? I don't think that I, living in the identities that I live in, could ever tell somebody how to react or how to feel. For me as a medical provider, I would hope that my patients and those that I care for and those in my community, if they see something, they say something and they're honest and upfront. But I think the question that I ask myself is how do I not do that in the first place? Absolutely. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. That is super. I would add um, to please, uh, if someone did experience that, to help us, uh, help us with that awareness and that recognition. And when I say us, I'm talking about healthcare around the country because we're all colleagues. Um, but if it is locally, we do have a patient representative, uh, uh, Marianne Cushing, that will uh, field those phone calls and follow up. And it would help us uh, understand what we did and how we improve and uh, how we improve that awareness until we do get to that time uh, that we all hope for, uh, where bias is minimized and outcomes are, are equal. Um, so I'm just going to end there because we're out of time, guys. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Dr. Lisa downing forget of SBMC Internal Medicine and Becca Filson, nurse practitioner with the Hospitalist Service. Next week, we will have Dr. Rosalind Case, a psychologist from Australia who studies decision-making, among many other topics, and we'll discuss what's involved in deciding whether to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, as I want to thank a few people, Mike Cutler from Cat TV, Ray Smith from Southwestern Vermont Medical Center, and Ashley Jowett from Southwestern Vermont Medical Center. I'm Trey Dobson. Go out and find joy in everything you do, even in the face of adversity, and we will see you next week.